This episode of Repod is brought to you by SEO Orb, BuzzShot, Recon, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, BG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Nick Moran, former creative director at the seminal escape room company Time Run, and current founder and game director of Spectre and Vox, the hit Kickstarter that is creating a new medium of tabletop escape gaming. Welcome, Nick. Lovely to be here digitally, obviously, not physically. We're in different places, just to clarify. Spoiling the illusion slightly, everybody, but we're not in a studio. Lovely to be here. And now you all know Nick. I hear your name so often, Nick. Like, I was like, who is this person? Why have I never met them? David talks about you all the time. You got quite a few mentions in Chris Latner's episode on season one of this podcast. So I'm so thrilled that you could join us here. Oh, I hope to disappoint. That's, that's always my ambition. And that's all I've ever tried to do across all the experiences I've ever done. And sometimes I succeed. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, it seems you really are disappointing people. That's to disappoint too kind. Them. And I would disagree and therefore disappoint you. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about some of the things you've done that disappoint people. <laughs> oh, don't worry, people. we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who are noticing that I am being a little more snappy with our guest, Nick is a dear friend, which I think comes as a surprise to a lot of people because there's an ocean between us. But we have uh, gotten to know each other at various events over the years. And he once randomly showed up at my front door. That was weird. Uh, you were in pajamas. I was in pajamas. Uh, and I, and it was quite late. And it, it was not an hour that someone should have been in pajamas. In. But anyway, I'm not, I'm not shaming you because pajama wear off is very comfy all around the day. I just personally would have been dressed. <laughs> and I just, I'm not judging you. So it's your life. And I saw too much of it at the same time. Okay, but you showed up unexpected on his doorstep from an ocean away. To be fair, it was Lisa Spira's idea for me to turn up unexpectedly. So I was, it was a conspiracy, really, more than anything. So I can't really be fully blamed. I didn't just turn up and completely unannounced. I just only announced half the owners of their house, which I think is enough permission. Yeah, it was a flight delay, Yeah, it was a flight delay, so I missed my connecting flight. And I was actually, by coincidence, getting bumped onto the same flight as you. Yeah, that actually, was a, a great really trip. trip. Yes, Terrible escape rooms, but wonderful trip. Nick, you have an obsession with structure that extends into the way you design games, craft your stories, and operate your business. We want to look at your work through the lens of structure. With that in mind, let's start with your early work in escape rooms at Time Run. I heard of Lance of Longinus long before I had a chance to play it. This game was, and I think still is, a legend for good reason. Countless creators, especially from Europe, cite it as a major influence. Can you tell us about this game and what you were trying to do structurally different from your typical early escape room back when you and your team made it in 2015? I think it helps to realize that I perhaps don't come from the same kind of background as a lot of escape room creators. I did a master's in narratology and the study of storytelling and skip writing. And then I guess I'll tell you with this kind of little bit of, I guess, my lore <laughs> before I emerged into escape rooms. I worked a lot in various different things, mostly as a freelance writer, mostly focusing on that, doing lots of various immersive theater projects that were huge failures, like catastrophic. My God, I just burned through money. Fortunately, it was other people's, which is the best <laughs> way to do anything. And then had an opportunity to do Time Run because we we're thinking about doing something in the escape room space and met some people who kind of wanted to do something similar, who could fund it. And that's really how Time Run conceptually came together from kind of a business point of view and where it came up to there. But because of the various things I'd done over the years, I always have to think about how structure is content. And I went to some early escape rooms. I actually went to Hint Hunt, the one of the JM's office, just when it opened in London. And I thought that this is so formless. You could easily just improve it with some basic structural storytelling letting people know where they are, letting people know where their motive was, and just imposing 
the sort of classical paradigm, the basic character in a situation with a motive has a change to the world, which leads to a first act turning point, which leads to rising action, leads to falling action, to a point of higher understanding, which then leads to a climax. That kind of element, by just placing that over this really solid, simple structure, you could create a much better experience. And from that, I guess, fairly simple and from my perspective, quite obvious decision, which is to impose basic Hollywood style cinematic storytelling on a medium which situates players as heroes, then that's sort of where Time Run came from. You have to start with those kind of things, right? Who are the players within this world? How do we make them feel heroic? How do they make them feel uh, high status, but not too high status? And suddenly the story starts to write itself in some way, shape or form. And I'd always really liked time travel as a medium, the previous immersive theatre things I'd done, partly because it gives you an infinite canvas to tell stories. And I'm more interested in building a world personally in game spaces than I am in telling particularly complex stories, because I don't think that people's brains are in the right frame of mind. And that helps to create a detailed, exciting world to be in, which is why a simple classical Hollywood structure, rather than something more complex like the ironic paradigm or something like that, works really well. So that was really what I was trying to do with Lance of Longness, which is, I think, one fairly simple, big, obvious decision, which I think a lot of other people have come to or already had at the same time ideas in different ways. And then just imposing that upon it, plus time travel, plus nice sets. Really nice sets. You talked a little bit about player status. I think you're the only person that I've ever spoken to about this. Talk to me about why the status the player feels they have within the game matters. People talk a lot about immersion, and immersion is a bit of a buzzword across all industries right now. I saw a flyer once for an immersive burger joint. I don't know how that functions. <laughs> Do you get inside the burger? Are you wrapped in lettuce the whole time? It's just a giant meat grinder. In I see. It's, so it's in immersed in your mouth. <laughs> it's immersed in your mouth experience, but you are the one melting inside your own mouth. I don't know how that works. To cut a part of your limbs? Anyway, let's not get into the details of that. But it's become a buzzword and everyone wants to be more immersive. And that's something that people constantly strive for in marketing and PR and agencies. And all these are all things that I have done over the years in my lead up to time run. But the truth is, is that the only way you create immersive experiences is by creating a sort of logical footpath from where people are when they're outside to where people are when they're in the game. So you have to think about who they are initially. So the players are situated within the world, but they're not of the world. That's the kind of main key structural limitation. You want them to be inside the world, but they can't be of it because they don't know anything about it. They are newbies. They're always green. So that naturally creates them as low status within that universe. But you want them to be heroes. So you've got to be able to raise that status slightly at the same time and escalate it across the adventure. So it's always good to think about where they are. And that's something I always focus on because... That's why within Time Run and with everything that I've done and always will do, there's always this sense of there's a character who's always in charge of you, who's far above you in terms of status, who gives you definition to the world, who gives you stakes, who tells you how it's important, who is the expert, who kind of frames the adventure. And there's an assistant character who helps make you into the heroes that you are. Well, you, well at least you should be along your journey if you're any good. So status is really important because it's a key part of immersion and therefore it becomes a key part of storytelling. People often think that they come in and say, you are a crack team of FBI agents. Me, a crack FBI agent, I have just arrived and I have no idea what's going on. That's also uh, a question of status, of who you are, where you're on the world and what you know and where you want to go to. So do you always have the players come as themselves? You don't give players like a character role. I personally would shy away from that. People are extremely poor performers and they can barely play themselves at the best of time in their chaotic and miserable lives. So I just think that it's better not to confuse them. It's better to say, you are you, and I'm going to make you into something better by giving you an exciting experience where you become a better version of you. Again, structure, you've got to work with the constraints you have. People come off the streets, they don't have much time to get immersed. They don't have much time to believe or create a character. At large-scale immersive theatre events or LARPing, people do the work beforehand. They spend their time getting into it. That's a part of the gig. That's a part of the structure of how you consume the content. And there's a reason why LARPing will, in my opinion, never be mainstream, because people just don't want to do the work. I certainly don't want to do the work, and I would consider myself quite an engaged person. I want to arrive and then begin my work to create the experience. 
So I, I just think it's, I think it's a leap too far. And also, some people just have a hard enough time grasping the basics, let alone the, the complex stuff, because they're tired, they've come from work, they've had a difficult day, they were dragged unwillingly by their partner or their friend. And you want to have that soft onboarding experience, which is the time that you have with them to start weaving the world around them and into them. So I'm very skeptical of giving a lot of roles unless you really have the onboarding experience that can make that work. You also mentioned with Lance of Longinus, the really nice sets, which I can confirm had really nice sets. We can also spoil this game because it no longer exists. Lands of Longinus was a time travel game where you jumped between all sorts of different eras and settings. In my opinion, almost any other escape room company, especially of that era, but even now today, that one game would have been at least three games in any given facility. And if you count the lobby spaces and the briefing spaces at Time Run, the footprint of that single game probably could have been four or five escape rooms at a lesser company. Walk us through the decision-making process to invest and create that amount of spaces and devote it to a single game. I do love losing other people's money. Uh, no, <laughs> I am being flippant. The answer is, is that we really came in with a singular ambition which is to do something above and beyond what we thought the market was doing at the time. That was a calculated decision. We wanted to elevate the escape room genre as we saw it at the time. Maybe that was overconfident. Maybe that was arrogant. But we saw what the competitors within the London space certainly were doing. And although there were some really excellent game experiences, no one was really approaching it in the way that we would have an experience that we'd want to go to. Something that really created that sense of world and agency and immersion. And truth is, is we thought that by creating a better experience, we'd have higher occupancy rates, we'd be able to do something exciting with it, we'd be able to get great word of mouth. And also, that forced us to be more innovative with the business model aspect, because typical escape rooms were 60 minutes, then the 30 minute reset, all the various padlocks and things that go out. So we pipelined our games, which at the time, I don't think I'd seen anyone else do. And which meant uh, for those of you not familiar with pipelining, I'm sure you are, is that rather than that, you have one space where people roam about unlocking every aspect of it and then they leave, that what it is, is that you always push forward sequentially into new spaces. And then the spaces are reset behind the players at the time, allowing you to get more players into the facility. So that's basically how pipelining works. So we could get a new team every 45 minutes. Actually, if we really wanted to and pushed it, we could get a new team in every 30 minutes if we really wanted to. But that was a horrible day to run. We only did it like three times. Are you talking about three different within the same game? Within the same game, always separate. Let me paint a picture for you. So effectively, although there were like six different spaces that people would go into, only four spaces that really mattered in terms of the pipelining. Briefing room, space one, space two, space three, and debriefing room. Team A come into come to the briefing room, have their briefing, 15 minutes, go into the game, space A. By the time they're in space B, they should be like 35 minutes into their game. And plus their briefing, that's about 15 minutes. Five minutes before that, another team would have come into the briefing room at the beginning of the game. People will reset behind them. You have dedicated monitors who monitor the game and you have dedicated resetters. So it kind of all operates like a machine behind the scenes. You push people on via active cluing and making sure that you know the game is flexible enough to kind of bend and stretch for teams that really have no idea what they're doing. And it just allows you to run that game so much more efficiently. Whereas a standard escape room can get eight teams, nine teams on a Saturday, like Lance Longness could get 16, 17. And that's just a big increase in footfall, especially since the staffing costs are way higher when you have an immersive experience with an actor at the beginning, dedicated actor, dedicated monitor, dedicated resetter. You have a much higher staff ratio. Although there are more people coming into the building, your staff ratio per player is significantly more. So all these things, you know, wanting to create something exciting in the marketplace, wanting to elevate it both structurally in terms of build and in terms of storytelling, in terms of effects just forced us into making all these various different decisions, which other people probably wouldn't have done at the time. We ran the whole thing on QLab, which is theater software. All these decisions allowed us to make an experience which pushed at the edges what escape rooms can do and really crossed that divide between London's very diverse and exciting immersive theater market and the kind of puzzle-heavy escape room market. On this subject of increasing the throughput of your games. I would describe you as a creative's creative, but you are also keenly aware of the business aspect of escape games. 
Tell us about the structural experiment that was Celestial Chain. And how did it work? And then what worked and what kind of fell short about it? In 2016, about a year and a bit after Lance of Longinus, we released the Time Run the Celestial Chain. And before I get into details of that, I'm just going to say that was immediately an extremely controversial thing to do. That was like the most controversial thing I've ever done. And I didn't even think that it would be. Uh, And that's partly because we changed up what the structural elements were within the game. So a standard escape room has that completion aspect. Everything you do is a success until you fail. Are you 100% the game? Even if you failed, you've 100%ed everything up until the point of failure. Now, Celestial Chain, we wanted to basically up the spend, make even better and bigger and cooler sets for five sets in the game rather than three, excluding briefing room, et cetera, et cetera. So although it didn't come from that perspective, it didn't come from a business decision, it came as how can we make everything bigger and afford to do it? That was the kind of big question. When the standard escape room, you can get people in every hour and a half with Lots of long on it, you can get people in 45 minutes. With Celestial Chain, you can get people in every 20 minutes. Now, that is a huge uptake on a Saturday in terms of the change of the business model. And what it worked is five separate spaces, and you had 12 minutes in each space. So what happened is you moved on every 12 minutes to the next space, no matter how well you've done within that. So it was a collection-based game where you had to collect various things from across space and time to fix an ancient machine. Uh, to trap a goddess. The story is, I actually really happy with that kind of the way the structure and the story and all played together. Actually, it was very nice and very neat. So each space you moved on after a certain amount of time and how many you collected. And if you made a puzzle, you just had to leave it behind because you were being chased by basically a terrible ancient force from across time and space. So otherwise, bad things happen to you. But that was basically the structure of it. Basically, you're accumulating all of these tools and equipment you need to go and defeat this yes. this goddess. How, how did you chase players out of a room? Did you literally have somebody in, like, physically pushing them into the next room? How did that work? Lights, sound, special effects, and also just telling people the rules. Again, the controversy was largely speaking initially from very hardcore escape room players, who at the time had a very defined idea of what an escape room was, and were like, this is not an escape room. So therefore, it is bad. Uh, And I'm not saying it was perfect. It was an experiment to break out the format. But it's like to rather than take it on its own merits, the initial backlash was very much, this is bad because it's not what I'm used to. After that first six weeks, people definitely started evaluating it much more on what it was, especially since still the predominant part of the market is new players. And the game was heavily weighted to also solve other problems within escape rooms. I think escape rooms are very bad for new players. I've seen a lot of players come through, Lance Longness, although I don't think you'd consider it a difficult game, David. I don't think it was tremendously difficult. We still had a very high failure rate, like 45%, which everyone always says their failure rate is 50-50 and they're all liars. And I wanted to do something that made bad players, and pl- not bad because they're stupid, but players who just aren't used to games, aren't thinking the right way, they've had a bad day, all the things that happen within a busy city, or they just don't know what they're into, that they got a better experience. And what that did is that the scoring system was weighted so that scores stacked diminishingly. No matter how many things you collect in each room, the better you did, the less the points mattered. They evened out the whole thing. So that means that bad teams got much higher scores than you think they'd probably get because they demonstrated breadth was the idea of the scoring system. Whereas those good teams who only like one particular type of puzzle, they got frustrated because, of course, they excelled in one particular area. But again, that was a choice of trying to solve a problem that I saw in the escape room market. Probably, again, a little hubristic for only like a year and a half into being an escape room designer, trying to solve problems of the format. But you've got to try, right? Someone has to try. Someone has to. And there is still plenty of learnings. About a year and a half ago, I'd be like, I've never tried something like Celestial Chain again. Now I'd like definitely try something like Celestial Chain again. I've got loads of ideas how to fix it. I also think the market is much more ready. Escape room players and escape room enthusiasts who have swelled in rank and number and are much more open to exciting new things than I think they were when perhaps they played only 10, 15 games a few years ago when what excites them is doing the same thing over and over again a little bit, but better. Operationally, that thing ran like a machine. The fact is each reset was like 40 seconds across the game. The way it was run and pretty much everything was automated or ran on timecode. QLab, which is this software has a called time code. So you can start the show like you do in like The Lion King or something. Like that. You start the show, every single queue happens in the same order, right? That's it. This, 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 this. So it's not manually run every single thing. 
So what the celestial chain ran on an endlessly looping time code. So once you start it at the start of the day, and then the celestial chain just ran, running itself throughout the day. There was a big scream from the goddess at the end. And that I heard that like a thousand times across the day because I was working in a little shed next to it. So, but again, like things like that, running an escape room on a time code is so efficient and also allows you to do much better special effects and things like that because you know when they're all going to happen. They're all within the system. You can queue them up. You can make sure they're really cool. Anyway, social chain, an amazing experiment that probably a year ago I'd have said I'd never do it again, but now I do like three times harder. <laughs> I loved Celestial Chain. I will agree that I was also in camp. Lance of Longinus was my favorite if I had to pick one. But I have very fond memories of playing Celestial Chain. And the only thing that I, looking back on the memory, didn't love about the game was that I felt so much time pressure in each part of the game that my memories of each distinctive space kind of muddied together. But I love the throughput model. I love the experimentation. I love the deliberate approach to raising quality while also raising profits. I think it's an important thing for our industry to do because it is always going to be throttled by capacity. There are a lot of fantastic creators out there who I really respect, who I'm always like, why not raise prices? That's like my conversation I have with them. And I'm just like, why not earn more money? And they're like, I'm afraid to do so. I'm like, experiment. Try adding extra peak on a Saturday. You're always going to sell out on a Saturday. Why not get a bit more money from them? And that's your cash cow that funds the rest of your projects. But I think people are nervous. And I just think like getting a lot of experience for $25, $30. Is that how, what's the average escape room price in the US, David? Uh, it's probably in the $30 to $40 range. Oh, more expensive than I thought quite a lot of bang for buck on a good escape room. I do think that top era market, games like The Room Berlin, games like The Crime Runners in Vienna, games like The Chamber in Prague, Sherlock's, all those kind of games, uh, yeah, Dark Park, The End, all those kind of things, The Dome. Those guys, I think, really can and should raise their prices because they're just top tier, well-beaten experiences. But maybe they know stuff that I don't know about their market. But I just think that the people who want to play your escape room are going to pay the premium and those price sensitive players are just going to be put off you no matter what and go to something bad in the market. That's my opinion. David and I had this exact same conversation in one of our bonus content, which is um, for patrons only, but we just talked about pricing structure in escape rooms. It's actually the bonus episode for the next episode. We recorded oh, things out okay. behind the curtain and yeah. I can hear the patrons unsubscribing right now. I will tell you this, if you're not a member on Patreon, you should sign up because it's a good conversation on pricing. I had just played a new escape room here in LA. Their pricing is about $90 US per game. And I do think that there was a market for it. That game may not necessarily, in my opinion, have lived up to that price. But the fact that I was willing to pay it just to see if it was worth it, I think that there was a market out there. And I think that from what it sounds like, some of these really premium experiences where the lobby is immersive, there's actors, there's a really thought out game. I definitely think that there's room for a higher ticket price. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. $90 is what I'd call robust. That is a confident move. That is bold. It is a confident move. I'll say I had the chance to play the original two time run games, Lands of Longinus and Celestial Chain, a few months before they closed. I was flying to Poland for an escape room conference and scheduled a one-day layover in London just so that I could play. And Amanda Harris and Drew Nelson happened to be flying back from Europe on the same day. And so we aligned our layovers so that we could meet at Time Run and play these games. These were some of the only games that I have played without Lisa. And she thinks it's the cruelest <laughs> thing I've done in our marriage. Uh, she's correct. You know, she missed out. I mean, tearing that down was a horrible day. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to do. Something I didn't really want to do, but I had to. Yeah. For those who, who aren't in the know, it had nothing to do with failure of the business. The business was actually quite strong. It had everything to do with the building yes. itself being torn And unfortunately, down. at the time, we didn't build... Now, uh, we build sets in a different way. When I say we, I work a lot with the same people who built Time Run. We build more flats and steel structures behind them so that you could just literally put them in the venue, take them out. Time Run wasn't built like that, although it was, you know, freestanding flats and stuff like that. It just would never have worked in the same way. So that's your chain, possibly. 
but it became too complicated. You <laughs> talking about these amazing escape rooms without me ever being able to play them is probably the cruelest thing you've done to me on this podcast. As I agree with Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, PG, most of my cruelty is time run based. <laughs> I see. I'm glad to have helped in some way raise your sort of evil quotient across the course of your life. It makes yeah, sense yeah. now that I've met Nick, actually. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. I'm chaotic time run. give a really huge thank you to the sponsors of this podcast, SEO Orb. They are a marketing company specifically working for escape rooms, and it is by an enthusiast. Piyush is an enthusiast, and I think that's who you want working for you. I had a small family business growing up, and I understand the mindset of like a small business owner. We are really nervous to spend money in marketing. It's, it's really tough feeling like you're paying all this money. You don't know what kind of results you're going to get back. And I have to say, after talking to Piyush, like honestly, I understand now why it's worth it to put money towards marketing. It's You can't do everything. You know, you're already a creator. You're running your own business. Marketing is hard. And you should absolutely let an expert do it. And not only somebody who's an expert at marketing, but somebody who is a huge fan of escape rooms and understands this industry. You can learn more at seoorb.com. Details in the show notes. Let's talk about something that PG can play. The next big project that you worked on was The Game Is Now, which is still operating in London. This is a licensed escape room episode of the BBC Sherlock. You co-wrote this with the series creators Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss. You shot and directed all of the audio and video elements with the show's actors, Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman, Mark Gatiss, Andrew Scott. How did working with established and treasured IP like Sherlock structurally change your approach to design? That's a very good question. I actually think in some ways it made me more conservative. And I think that's probably my honest admittance to myself now with some hindsight. At the beginning of that, we're fresh off Celestial Chain in late 2016. So the way that project happened is the BBC uh, and Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss were looking for a partner to make the official Sherlock escape room. They were about to broadcast the final series of Sherlock. And they basically came to Time Run and were like, these are the guys. And then they brought Stephen Moffat, Mark Gatiss, producer Sue Vertu, to go and play time room sexual chain four days after opening which is i think actually no i think it was day two so obviously the game was basically a bit of a disaster as the game always is early on but they had a great time anyway and they approached us and i think at the time i was very much aware that in order to do something with ip that you don't have to break the mold. The breaking the mold is doing the escape room aspect. That's what people hadn't really done. And making it canonical within the world of the show and working with the creators to make something that, you know, wove into the storyline and backstories and wasn't just like a brand slap onto an existing escape room IP. So I think structurally, what I did was really made a lot of the same choices that I made with Lance of Longinus and transplanted them to Sherlock. Now, looking back, I think I probably would have been more stylistically bold in how I structured it. We actually had a hybrid structure worked up between Lance of Longinus and Celestial Chain, which basically put kind of the best of both together in a kind of Frankenstein format. And that was originally what we were going with for Sherlock. But then we thought the best thing to do, because this is something that needs to just exist and be runnable by lots of people. It's going to be a massive venue. What we wanted to do is create something that could be run by anyone with a much larger staffing pool, much easier to understand, and that did a lot of the things that are still structurally different from a lot of escape rooms that we were doing lots of longness and transplant it to Sherlock. So a lot of the same decisions and thought process were made about the show, about how we situate people. And also the extra layer on top was how we make all those decisions also feel like an episode of Sherlock. So it, it was enough of a challenge to bring in the IP element without breaking the underlying mold that we'd already created and were so comfortable with. And nowadays, on other IP stuff I've worked on and still work on, I'm like, let's try something different because I think people can take it. I just want to clarify for people that may not know, uh, you guys keep saying IP that stands for intellectual property, right? Yes, 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 sorry. 
Jargon, I apologize. <laughs> the storyline, the characters, yeah. the brand, that's what we mean when we say IP. Treasured intellectual property like Harry Potter and Star Wars seem to be viewed as this holy grail that escape room creators badly want. But I think you see it as more of a devil's bargain. What makes IP a trap for an escape room or immersive game creator? So firstly, uh, to, to be clear, I have nothing to do with the Gamers Now, which is the Sherlock venue right now. I haven't been there in a long while. I'm sure they're running it well. I don't know what's happening with the game. And as always, you never really know what's happening with an experience after you no longer have your hand in it and have your eye on it. I hope it's been run well. But from a structural point of view and from a conceptual point of view, you, Anonymous Escape Room Creator, listening to this podcast, are never going to get the access I had. I'm just sorry. You're not going to get to work with the creators of the show and the writers of the show because Sherlock was in a very unique and weird situation. So the thing about it is I learned a lot from a project because I knew I was especially privileged um, that the BBC has a certain amount of programming that has to output to external production companies. And Sue Virtue is the producer of Sherlock and also Stephen Moffat's wife is the producer of the show. She's a really established long-term producer from like a lineage of like super women producers. And she's awesome. You guys would love her. She's so funny and amazing. And unlike if you're working with End of All Shine or Disney or something like that, where you're working with some licensing person who's like, let's do an escape room, let's do that. And they're farming out to the highest or lowest bidder. They chose us because they had a hand in every process and they have happened to have created this mega brand. And that was an amazing experience because of the huge amounts of access we get. But other IP deals and other things, you're not going to sit down with the Zack Schneider and do a Justice League game. Some IP brand manager is going to check you within those guidelines. You might have access to the actors and you might not, but you will not be, from a creative point of view, you will not be satisfied with what you get. And then aside from that, talking from a business point of view, IP is not a silver bullet. Although IP games, from my limited evidence, do sell probably very slightly better, they still suffer all exactly the same problems that escape rooms do, which is that you're quiet during the week, you're busy at weekends, you have the same staffing costs, but you also have higher expectations on your game and higher pressure on it to be good. I think that a lot of people think that Harry Potter or Star Wars, Harry Potter probably would make you loads of money. Probably. It's like a problematic creator aside. It's still a very popular series and people would love to be within that world. But unless you're really talking about those golden IP, those like world-class IP where people will travel to do it because it's that thing. And Harry Potter is very pleased because J.K. Rowling gets a hand in every experience she does. Like she took months apparently to sign off all the bills and stuff at Universal Studios to make sure every single detail about all like the owl droppings are right on the buildings. That's the level you have to do the Harry Potter game. That's, not, that's, that's true. That's true. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not joking about that. You're just not going to have the access you want to. Your game is not going to be as exciting as you want to. And it's not going to be the silver bullet that's going to save your business. And if you do invest hugely in it to be something amazing, you know, you've got to up your staffing, you've got to up your throughput, you've got to up your build, you've got to up your expense, you've got to up your maintenance. It can become a bit of a boondog for your company. You also have licensing fees. But they're not huge. But they are chipping away at your profit margin. Probably with something like Star Wars, I reckon that Disney is particularly mercenary. And it wouldn't be the usual like 5% or whatever it is that most licensing deals are. Uh, 5%-ish. Also, it's not necessary. People are always like, oh, you're ripping off IP. Go ahead rip off ip make wizard school guys make wizard school make sort of four houses of sorcery make a large castle in the countryside where basically kids are given ptsd by dark magic wizards for four years oh seven years six years actually technically because then they go off and have arguments in the countryside for an entire book you can borrow ip without getting into trouble if you're clever and borrow all the best bits whilst making your own ip thing is is harry potter is desperately derivative anyway it's incredibly pedestrian. The writing is poor. It's kind of racist. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. The only Asian character is called Cho Chang, guys. You don't need to touch it with a barge pole. Just make up your own stuff, which is, you know, free from the transphobic grips of its awful creator. Just do something which is just a ripoff. It's okay. And then you get all the advantages with none of the disadvantages. People are like, oh yeah, that's a Harry Potter-ish game. You don't have to do the licensing thing. And also... The thing is, it takes forever to get the deal. You'll spend so much time on legal fees and so much time in boardrooms with difficult licensing people with stupid haircuts. 
by the end, you'll be tired and you'll want to die. And you'll have six seconds of the person who stood in the background behind Chris Hemsworth and Thor, uh, just like standing there being like, hello, I'm some character you don't know from Thor and I'm all they could get. And they're like, look at my Thor licensed room. That's not it, guys. This is not (laughs) it. Stop wasting your time. Just make lovely games. Make your own IP. Hire writers. Hire theatre writers. They're always cheap because they don't have any work. I'm joking. But you can like hire really good writers, especially in LA and places like that. There are loads of great writers who would happily do like a world Bible for not an extraordinary amount of money, tie all your games together, give extra stories. If you're just someone who's interested in the puzzles and building great sets, it's not a lot of work for someone who's an expert in storytelling to come in and give you what you're missing that an IP gives. I just think you make your own IP, make your own mega brand, sell it for millions, live in a yacht, live underground if you want, live under the ocean. That's my dream. I mean, so I grew up with the off-brand Barbies from Chinatown that I got for Christmas every year. So I'm totally fine with that. I do think that the only benefit to using an established IP is like you said, it takes a lot of work to get players immersed in a world, to get them into a narrative. So with an established IP, they've already done the background work, right? They've read the story. They know the narrative. It's easier for the players to put themselves in that world. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's where the tropes that escape rooms already lean on come into effect. As an industry, we're already using and experiencing all of these things that are already movie and book and video game analogies. You find a wand in a room, you know what the wand does, whether it's because you watched Harry Potter or something else. The cultural shorthand is already there for you to use because this stuff exists. Well, like I said, if you borrow from it, you are in a school. It is a school for magicians. You don't even have to say wizards. And people already have that framework, so they will just put themselves there. The magic after school program. You know, you you go to a regular school (laughs) and then there's an after school thing for magic. This episode is brought to you by Telescape by Buzzshot. This week, we're featuring Pursuit of the Assassin Artist, one of my absolute favorite game of the past year. A online time loop game that has players interacting with actors. It feels great. I completely forgot what interface was even involved. It just vanished. It was just me and the actors and the game. That's the power of Telescape. Telescape is an online escape room platform, full featured, that allows players to collaboratively interact with each other and interact with characters. It's a fantastic way to build your game, no matter what level of expertise you have, if the price is going to be right for you. You can learn more at telescape.com. Details in the show notes. You talked about the extraordinary access that you had while producing The Game Is Now. I firmly believe that you got the absolute best performance of Moriarty out of Andrew Scott. I think he's better in The Game Is Now than he is in the show, and I think he's fantastic in the show. Do you have any fun stories to share from all of these different recording sessions you did with all of these actors? The first thing is, what's great about Sherlock, and again, the access that they have, is that Stephen and Mark and Sue have created this little family. They're all mates. They all get on really well. They're all like, oh, how is Martin? Have you seen him recently? They all like care about each other. And what was nice is that they were like, hey, do you want us to do this escape room thing we're doing? Do you mind doing it kind of as a favor? And they're like, sure, why not? On the Martin Freeman one, I just, because Martin Freeman was quite difficult to pin down, then he suddenly gave us a date, short notice. So I just found some green screen studio in the center of London because I didn't have much time. They're like, would you like an in-house cameraman? I'm like, yes. And I arrived on the day. I'm like, you are filming Martin Freeman today. And also teach me how to use the auto cue. (laughs) And we didn't have a crew. It was Sue, Mark, Martin, me, Josh, and this camera guy, (laughs) terrified camera guy, like 22, at a film school. The thing is, about again, on the access front, like Martin Freeman just turned up and said, so you told me to wear the most like John Watson shirt I've got. Is this kind of good enough? If I button it up, I bought two others in my bag. He just turned up and he got the tube and he got lost on the way because he was 10 minutes late. It's like these kind of things. And, <laughs> and Sue, the producer of Sherlock, just basically did his makeup. <laughs> and, then like, and then we just sat in front of a camera and he was like, what is going on? And he, just, he was such a, like, a sport, did a really good job. He does like the health and safety briefing for this fake competitions where he's been forced to be the front man of it. My favorite thing actually that he did 
is that there's loads of little Easter eggs in the game that no one will ever get. But on the opticians, which is the first part of the experience, which is this fake opticians in a shopping center, my favorite part of the whole experience, because you're meant to be spies. And obviously, uh, Sherlock is all about seeing and observing. So there's uh, doors opticians. We have to go and say you're here for your eye test. To clarify here, the game begins when you walk into a mall and it looks like a mall eyeglass store. You knock on the door and they ask you if you have an appointment. And if you do, you sit down with an optician in a lab coat who is really your in-character game host. And then, of course, you have your eye test, which actually tests your observation, logic and deduction and gets a briefing from a really miserable looking John Watson who's been forced to front this thing. He was great. Andrew Scott was amazing. Andrew Scott is like the coolest person. This guy was like, hey, the great thing is the suit still fits. I'm not too fat. <laughs> That's about Moriarty suit. And then was like, so what's going on here? Escape rooms? I love escape rooms. <laughs> Things like that. I mean, he was, like his performance in the game is incredible. Like throughout the game, it's absolutely insane. It really is. He is someone who like absolutely gives it to you. When you are like, he did two takes. The first take was quite uh, menacing and low. And, and, and Mark was just like, let's give it energy, Andrew. And Andrew was like, okay, I know what that means. And throughout the rest of the game, every single thing he did was one take. That is a one take one. That's amazing. I left the game is now just thinking, gosh, I really wish they would do a Moriarty consulting criminal show. His star just keeps on rising, Andrew Scott. Yeah. But he is now, I think, at a stage where he could easily carry a blockbuster show on his own, which he sort of does things like Fleabag. He's like the secondary character in that. He is just such a fantastic talent and he was great he was super nice hey nick do you have any clips of this that we could post in our show notes so that our listeners can take a look at the videos we've been talking about i mean absolutely there are trailers and things and teasers out there that um have probably faded into the annals of the internet somewhere but i do have copies of that have been in the public domain so there are definitely something exciting which really gives off the full dynamism of andrew scott in particular's performance and also some of the martin stuff as well though uh, obviously being a villain in that show was a bit more animated than being an optician but yeah it could definitely give you something that, that, awesome. that gives your listeners something and in the show notes we will also include photos of all of the other games in addition to designing all of these magnificent games nick is also a fantastic escape room photographer so there are some beautiful shots of these games that no longer exist that we will be able to share with you we'll also throw in a photo or two of nick's dog eleanor who is the goodest dog I do have one further anecdote for you. So uh, Benedict come back. There's some video of him in the show, but at first we thought we could only really get audio. And he's a very busy man. Obviously, his old Doctor Strange flying about with his cape that murders people. I've not seen the film. I don't know what happens in it. They were like, oh, yeah, could, could you need know, that? Can we record some Benedict audio? Like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And then Sue just said, well, why don't we just go to his house? We'll just go to his house and record it. And obviously, I'm, I'm one of my many hats. I'm also uh, a kind of audiovisual engineer. I've had lots of hats in my time. And so I have the, my portable sound kit. So I just arrived with my camera bag and my sound kit and all my mic stands at Bender Cumbatch's house with Mark Gatiss. And, and they were like, hey! And, and Sue was there as well. So it was just me, Sue, Mark, and Benedict, or Ben, as he told me to call him him and I are extremely close, like in his living room. And he and I, he was like, he asked me if I wanted like some, some water. I'd love some sparkling water. And he said, we don't have any sparkling water. I could just pop to the shop and get some if you want. And I was like, no, 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 Benedict Cumberbatch. You don't have to go to the shop uh, and, and get me sparkling water. It's a, like, it's, it's okay. It's fine. You know, but anyway, um, <laughs> uh, lo- lo- lovely of him to, to, to suggest that. The shop was very close, so it really wouldn't have been a big deal for him. But uh, yeah, it was... That was super fun because he was great. It was another fun time. Again, in terms of access, the fact is, is that if on with Doctor Strange and his murdering cape, uh, I'm, I'm judging this from two seconds of the trailer, if you want to be Benedict Cumberbatch, just some Doctor Strange audio, you're just not going to get that. You'd have to go through Disney. Disney are going to ask his agent. His agent's going to say no. Whereas they just asked Benedict. <laughs> and then when we need more audio, he's like, I'm doing an audio book next week. I do his after sound engineer to do a bit more for you. Is that right? <laughs> That was it. Like, that's the level of access and favors that we've got to ride the coattails of. And also, the thing is, is that Steve Moffat and Mark Gators are extremely creative, interesting, amazing people. For me, they were the best part of the whole project. Steve Moffat is just, like, amazing Scottish uber dad. And Mark Gators is so charming and fun. And those people made the project fun because we're just an escape room company. I know in escape rooms, there are, at the time, we were, like, a relatively 
moderately sized fish in an infinitesimally small pond. But we are, we were nobodies. And they treated us with such respect, all our ideas. They really took everything on board. When they were like, oh, we've got to do the script. I was like, would you like me to write the first draft of it and then give it over to you to, for amendments? They were like, thank you very much. It was so helpful. You know, all that kind of stuff. All this respect that they had. And it, that's part of the reason why they've able to create this show that people love around the world is that sense of bond between the actors and cast and directors. And they were all talking about someone who'd recently died from the crew with all the actors. All of them were mentioning it, how nice that guy was. It really is that family. And that's why I'm saying that I shy away from IP because I still find it a very difficult experience. It was difficult two years of my life working with that, working at scale, building an IP-based project. And I had worked with the kindest, nicest, best creatives, top of their game. I just watched Dracula a long time, which is their follow-up. And that's awesome. That's so, such, such a good piece of TV. I think even better than Sherlock, such a great show. And they're still at the height of their powers, those people. Yet they were so warm and generous with that piece of IP. And I just don't think you're going to get that. And I still find it difficult with all those pros. I just don't think that if you're handed this golden egg to do it again, unless it's something where you don't need, like Jurassic Park, you don't, all the IP you need is Jurassic Park and Bosom Dinosaurs. That's quite straightforward. Unless it's something where you don't need actors, you don't need access, just shy away from it. That's always my advice. I can say as someone who spent most of my career consulting for large organizations, respect is the hardest thing to come by. And the projects where you get it are truly special. Last year, we had folks from 63 countries join in for Recon, the Reality Escape Convention. We are once again hosting Recon online for players and creators alike. If you're a player, check out the Play Pass for games that you can only play at Recon. And if you're in the industry or you want to be, make sure to get yourself a Pro Pass for special workshops. And if you're on a budget, our basic access ticket packs a ton of value, and it's pay what you want. Yeah, that means you can attend for free. We are doing this because we want the entire global immersive gaming community to learn, connect, and have fun at Recon. There will be talks, games, workshops, vendors, and after parties. We can't wait to see you at Recon on August 22nd and 23rd. Learn more at realityescapecon.com. Talk about your latest project, Spectre and Vox, a tabletop escape game where you are manufacturing beautiful laser-cut dollhouses and augmenting them with a digital interface and voice acting. The project was a smash hit on Kickstarter, pulling in more than 250,000 pounds, roughly $350,000. How did this new and ambitious game structure emerge? The truth is, it's one of these things that emerged from capacity. So obviously structure is content, as I always say, but what structures you can build depends on the capacity you have. So for example, if you want to build a game with multiple environments, can you do that is the first question. And then should you do that is the second question. So my partner in this project, a man named Glenn Hughes, he and I together were various different ways of making the escape room at home experience, not paper. Because for me, that was our like, key design challenge. How do we make something that feels like a set? Because for me, I still think that the best thing that, about an escape room is often the set and how you journey through that. And that's what the puzzles are. And that's what the structure is. It's a question of how you journey through, through amazing environments. That is what, for me, a great escape room sometimes is. Like a truly world-beating one is everything as well. But sometimes that's enough to be great. You know, lovely sets. So we thought about manufacturing different things. Before we'd come up with Spectrum Vox fully, we created this character in that game who investigated various different mysteries. And the way that they tackled those mysteries was by creating a diorama, a reconstruction of the scene. And sometimes when you have an idea, you're like, actually, that's it. That's the exciting thing. The diorama aspect, creating a little miniature set, because that gives you such a sense of place, which is for me why great sets are good. They give you a sense of environment. They changed the structure of the game from intellectual to visual 
And even a piece of paper with a drawing of a room is still intellectual. You're forced to visualize the set. And we want to, obviously a doll's house is not a full set unless you're extremely small, but it's somewhere along the way to that. So that's kind of where we like, how do we create something which is immersive experience for the home? How do we create something which feels like a set, feels like something exciting that you'll be proud to show at your dining table, that dominates your dining table, as I say, and people have much mocked me for as a phrase in my Kickstarter video. And that's kind of where it came from. And a lot of the characters and world stuff, that also comes from, I think, a lot of my biases. I like things in the late Victorian age because it's a period of like consequential change. My two like dominant areas of interest in fiction or narrative fiction that I make are like time travel or ghosts. Just on time travel, we knew what was next. So I really like ghosts. I think ghosts are very interesting. And I was obsessed with the paranormal when I was a kid. And not in a, like a credulous way, it, ghosts don't exist. I liked the idea of trying to scientifically understand them. There's this book called Strange But True by a man called Colin Wilson, who actually was the writer of Spiderworld series, which is a seminal uh, series of British science fiction books, which kind of went out of print and then came back. Two excellent books. If you want to read some really good science fiction that was kind of like a cult classic, read Spiderworld The Tower and Spiderworld The Delta, which ends on a cliffhanger and don't continue because the ones he wrote when he was older just don't stand up. But those two are absolutely fantastic. He was obsessed with the idea of ghosts being fragments of memories that play over and over like a zoetrope, emotional moments that are printed on time. And I was like, I've always loved that idea. And I was like, great. Now I have an environment to play with this particular idea. And that's basically how Spectrum Box kind of came about. Okay, so they are playing in this dollhouse. And then there is also voice acting and a digital interface. And that's how you interact with characters, etc., throughout this game is like online and then also through the voice acting. Is that like an audio track that plays on the website or how does that work? We're building an app for iOS and Android. You activate it, you kind of put in your case and you observe things within the environment and issue commands to the character, which just of course doesn't exist within the game. So that's basically your digital interface for this physical character you move about. So you want to be like, you see a tree and look at the tree, but also you can see all this pipe work. It'd be like turn pipe L, turn pipe R, so you observe the things within the diorama and you give commands via the app. And that then releases voice commands and of course text. So that's the kind of the core part of the game, which is upmarket text adventure plus upmarket doll's house. My main confidence is whether the game is bad or not, you are never going to get doll's house this good for that cheap. Like doll's house were extremely expensive and uh, we did not make a huge amount of profit on this project. Enjoy your doll's house. Even if you hate the game, love your doll's house. Put your hamsters in it. And for those who know Room Escape Artist and Lisa and, and myself and the projects we have going on, we have another side business called Locktopus Studios, where we have a Alexa framework that we're slowly starting to roll out games on for playing spoken word games. If you check out the Kickstarter, it talks about that and us. That is no longer involved, mostly because we all agreed that the limitations of Alexa and the needs of a physical dollhouse and some of the things that Becker and Vox demanded, the two things weren't really being friends. And we decided to um, break up that little Not the break up the friendship. There. No, break up that friendship, I understand, yes. It's the question of development, right? You put things together, you try them out, and you want to make the best thing that's best for everybody. I just want to make sure, because I know especially people on our Patreon community had uh, noted this was a mutually decided upon thing. I mean, Nick and I have a blood feud that's going to extend for generations, but it's for a totally different reason. Nick, can people still back this project on Kickstarter? Is it still available? You cannot back it because our, our responsibility is to the backers of Kickstarter, where we'll not sell any product until we know where everything is happening in terms of shipping. Full disclosure to anyone who's listening who's back the project, as I've seen, I thought, I'm sure you've seen on our Kickstarter update, it has been a thorny project from COVID delays where we couldn't really get people in the workshop and no one would service our laser cutters. So we couldn't test them to see the new ones that we got, whether they would actually cut in the right way with the levels of detail. Then obviously the laser cutters that we wanted to have to upscale production that we spent a lot of money on. Uh, got stuck in the Suez Canal. And of course, the development of the app is not something that we're particularly used to. So it's a bit outside our comfort zone. So obviously we're a bit slow at that. So obviously the timeline is delayed slightly due to mostly COVID, but also other things beyond our control. So if you are a Kickstarter backer, I am deeply sorry from the bottom of my heart. I was hoping to get this done by now, partly because, you know, I have a sense of professional pride. I don't like disappointing people and things being late. 
But it seems like every Kickstarter right now is delayed. It's been a difficult time for the world of manufacturing. And one thing that you might not be aware of is there is a massive global shortage of materials. So material costs are through the roof, which is extremely difficult to get. So timber is almost impossible to get from across the world. Uh, I was speaking to Chris Latner, who you have all encountered from a prior podcast, and he's struggling to get wood to build his games too. It's a difficult time for everyone, but it's no excuse for disappointing anyone, and I am sorry. That's a bummer to hear, but hopefully eventually in the future, I can place an order for this. Fingers crossed. We have 1,812 games to build, and we probably will do, probably will just round that up to 2,000 and ship some at the end or later or something like that. So there might be a few. But also, it's an expensive game for us to make, and we don't make tremendous amounts of profit on it. So it's a question of whether this is a limited time product and we only ever sell it once. That is also an option for us. We haven't really decided. It depends on feedback, whether people enjoy it. I hope people enjoy it. But obviously, that is for the future when it is shipped to you. Makes sense. It's incredibly ambitious. Yes. (laughs) Which I think is the thing that's going to be carved into your tombstone. Yes, yes, yes. It looks beautiful. Like the photos I saw of it, it, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Regardless of whether people like what we've done or like the things we put together, the actual object is absolutely fantastic. And it's actually better now than it was. The prototype we built for Kickstarter, it looks like crap compared to what we go now. Now it, it's basically the same, but just better. Yeah. On to the blood feud. <laughs> I don't know what this is. is (laughs) Nick, you and I, we first met in Amsterdam. We were both traveling there to speak at the second up the game conference. And our mutual friend, Ken Ferguson from the UK escape room (laughs) blog, The Logic Escapes Me, (laughs) said that we had to meet. You joined us for a number of games that day. We had a great time. But over lunch was when we truly bonded. We were sitting in a pub and got into an impassioned argument about whether games could be art. I was arguing for, you were arguing against. We were both having a great time, but over the course of the two (laughs) hours that we were arguing, almost all of the people at our table and the tables around us came to the conclusion (laughs) that we hated each other. Can you, in 30 seconds or less, state your position, then I'll state mine, and we can see if we can settle this once and for all. I have a very narrow definition of art, which is that art is something that you consume only with your mind. And the moment that you sully it with interactivity, then you change the nature of it, and it no longer becomes art because you have that physical aspect to it. But that is not a quality perspective. I just have a narrow definition of what art is. Most art is terrible. Absolutely terrible. Most everything is terrible. Most things in this world are bad. Just because something is art, it does not mean it's better. I just think that games, which are often ephemeral and often based in the tech of what you can do now and therefore date very quickly because of that interactive element, the tech that powers it and the interactivity that powers it, are not art and nor should they try to be. Because honestly, most paintings are terrible. Most plays are bad. Most things that you'll consume as art and films are bad. Let's not try. Well stated. I, for my part, I don't think interactivity eliminates the room for art. I think that if you were to take visual art and blend it with musical art and then put that together with anything else, I don't think those things stop being art. And... I also come at this from an American standpoint where I want to ensure First Amendment protection for games. I think that it's important that they're viewed as art because I think that they are a form of expression. They're a way to express oneself, either as the player or the creator. To me, that is something that matters a great deal to me. But I also agree, just because something is art doesn't mean that it is good or better or worthy of anyone's time. I was stating my argument in probably a way that I'd think back then. Now I'm much more softer, I think, on this. I still probably think a lot of the same core ideas. But I think the main overlap that we have, which is the probably the most important thing, is that games shouldn't feel inferior to more standard art forms and that art does not make something better. That's the core thing. I completely agree with you. I think we can leave it at that. Nick, what is coming next for you? Uh, Spectrum Vox, probably another Spectrum Vox if people enjoy it. 
or if people don't enjoy it, screw it. Let's make games <laughs> forever. Probably another game that is a, a hybrid between the physical and the digital, which is where I want to do more stuff because I'm excited by it. Some live escape rooms this year, but that's complicated. That's a long explanation, which I think would be more apparent when they're open. But I'm kind of looking a little bit at the moment beyond the framework of escape rooms and what I can do next, what I can do that excites me next from a structural point of view. Over the course of the pandemic, I think that what I've realized is that I want to do something quite different next, something very big, and something which I think pushes at the boundary of what an escape room is. I'm really interested in open world stuff. That's something that I think has always fascinated me. I want to create a world where people can have agency to have all kinds of experience that they want under one roof, which people can revisit. And you can get multiple teams in at the same time, but it enhances the experience. And I'm determined to tackle that next. This has been a very new development, and I'm pretty sure that's what I'm going to do next. Because honestly, I think, although escape rooms excite me, there are so many great creators around Europe and beyond doing amazing escape rooms and keeping on pushing in that format. What can I personally bring to help push my ideas within the genre? And I think that really nailing something open world would be a big win for everybody and something that I personally am excited to try and do. Of course, it could be a catastrophic failure, but I'm used to that. I look at things like Meow Wolf. You want to push the structure. Yeah, I was like, look at things like Meow Wolf, and I'm like, what a lovely art installation that you walk around in. It looks great. And you know, I'm like, that, that they've got people to do that and consume that is so awesome. And I think really impressed that they've created these amazing things there. And I'm like, how can I do a Meow Wolf, but for escape rooms? And that's my main structural question right now. And the answer is, will it require tremendous amounts of money? Of course it will. But people would pay it. You guys should see my face right now as Nick is talking about this. I am so excited because I could not imagine anything better than a three-day weekend on a cruise ship or a hotel where it's basically Westworld, completely immersive. I mean, and then again, this is coming from somebody who spent 39 days on an island pretending to be a castaway and literally <laughs> starving for four days, losing 30 pounds, sleeping in the rain and in the mud to get this full immersive experience. But I think there's a lot of people that would pay a lot of money to have something like that and have a game embedded within it. Absolutely. Well, multiple games, ideally. I think it's, again, Meow Wolf, I find personally very inspiring. I know people are talking about them a lot, but I think what they've done, again, with the art world, is really push at the boundaries of what a consumable art experience is. And I really respect it. I've never been, I've seen all the videos and stuff like that. I'd love to go. But for me, tackling that challenge, but also because I'm not from an art background, from a set building and, you know, construction of mechanics and things like that and structure point of view, the answer is how do you weave something into something of that scale, 20,000 square foot or 50,000 square foot, ideally. That for me is the exciting challenge that I think will be what I want to do next. I'd like to make into something that just opens up what escape rooms is, because again, to go back to, to some of the things that I've always been trying to solve with Celestial Chain, which still is probably the best summary of a lot of my problems with escape rooms, is that I just want to do something that everyone can enjoy, no matter what your engagement is. And always my fear is that an escape room can lose people. And I've seen it happen. I've seen Tamari games. They were great. They were really nice. People really enjoyed them. But you know what's great about an experience like Meow Wolf? is that everyone can enjoy it and get it. Everyone can enjoy and they can digest the art on different levels and digest the scenic, but they can go and have a lovely time when they're not forced to do anything. You want something that allows people who want passive experiences to have a passive experience and people who want active experience to have an active experience. And people who want to go and drink in a bar, which is nicely themed also to do that as well, because give me that food and beverage money, guys. If you're coming to an area and go to a bar, someone else's, no, I want that money. That annoys me. <laughs> that's for me the exciting challenge and i'm really pumped by it how i get there that's an exciting question but yeah meow wolf plus escape rooms plus everything that's it so nick where can people find you on social media you can find me on twitter at baranafrox i don't really tweet much apart from about british politics so if you uh, like talking about that then come and be depressed you can find me on uh, linkedin that's the other social media platform i'm on I don't know, don't know why you would. I will 
have all the links for you on how to find Nick Moran on social media in the show notes. Including Pinterest. In, including Pinterest, <laughs> if you have one. See my board of cushions. I'm buying a house, guys. <laughs> Look at them. The Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. If you're enjoying this podcast, an easy and free way to help support us is dropping a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and consider sharing it with a friend or two who you think might enjoy it. If you want to do more, consider joining our Patreon community. We have an active Discord and offer all sorts of bonus content, including companion episodes with each episode of this podcast. The guests frequently join us for the bonus episodes. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash roomescapeartist. No matter how you choose to support us, we appreciate you. Listening to the podcast supports the podcast. So thanks for that. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira and edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. In this game in Greece, Mrs. Rose's house, and you're being pursued by these ghosts the entire time. Yeah, I was playing with Andrew Preble, who Andrew Preble is like, Andrew Preble is a very intelligent, brilliant, charming man. But sometimes he's really in his own world within these game experiences. This is Andrew, the owner of Escape My Room in New Orleans. He was there and we were there in this kind of like the height of the game being pursued by ghosts. And Andrew hadn't really clocked that these ghosts were against us. I said, I wonder if these are friendly ghosts. And then through a little hole in the wall, one of the ghosts went, no. And the entire room went, <laughs> obviously very frustrated that we, Andrew hadn't realized we were being hounded by ghosts the entire time. <laughs>